What is the relationship between communication and leadership? Communication to me is operationalized leadership. I think the only way you demonstrate leadership, managerial skills, influence is through communication. So to me, they are intimately intertwined. There are others who see communication as a necessary evil. I believe communication is critical. And like I said, I believe it is operationalized leadership. It is how we demonstrate leadership. It is how we do leadership. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader that you can possibly be. It's my gift to you and it's completely free. In today's episode, we are joined by Matt Abrahams, a renowned communication expert, Stanford University lecturer, and author of Think Faster, Talk Smarter. Matt's research and expertise focuses on helping individuals conquer the fear of public speaking and excel when asked to speak spontaneously. With his engaging insights and practical advice, Matt empowers leaders to communicate with confidence in any situation, whether that is fielding difficult questions in front of the media, taking a Q&A session after a presentation, or being asked to give an impromptu speech after a dinner event. That's enough of an introduction from me, so let's dive right in to this week's conversation. Here's my interview with Stanford lecturer and global communication expert, Matt Abrahams. So, Matt, you have got a brand new book out, Think Faster, Talk Smarter. Um, I've got a copy in my hand right now, which I am really enjoying and getting great value from, I must say. But first of all, can you tell us the backstory to the book and why you went about writing it? Because I think the story behind that is fascinating. Well, thank you, Ben. And I am thrilled to have this conversation with you. And I appreciate you asking about the backstory of the book because there are, there are actually several different paths led me to write this book. So the book is all about what I call spontaneous speaking, speaking in the moment. If you think about it, most of our communication isn't planned. It's not presentations, pitches, and meetings with agendas. Instead, it's what happens in the moment, answering questions, giving feedback, making small talk, fixing our mistakes. and this is something that there's not a lot of information out there on to help people get better at it. Now, I personally have been spontaneous speaking much of my life with a last name starting with A-B. I have always gone first. So all through schooling and even some of my work life, I was always called on first, which meant I was the first one speaking. It was all spontaneous. And similarly, at the business school where I teach, I teach at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, the deans came to me several years ago and said, we have a problem. Our problem is that our students, some of the best and brightest young business minds are choking. They're, they're, they're not able to answer cold calls. And Ben, I don't know if you remember, but back in school where the teacher would say, what do you think? And you have to respond. They're really struggling. So as somebody who teaches communication at the business school, they came to me and said, can you help with this problem? So having the personal experience throughout my life of having to have done it and then seeing that our students were struggling really served as the impetus for understanding what's going on and creating a methodology that's captured in the book. Amazing. And there's a 
linked story to this, right, which I read about in the book. Tell us your experience with onions. <laughs> yes. So I've had to apply this methodology in my own way, even before the methodology was codified. So when I left graduate school, I was looking for work. I worked in high tech for a number of years. I had student loans to pay and I wanted to get some real life experience before I came back to my passion, which is teaching. I was interviewed for a high tech company and I show up to the interview and this was round four or five. I met with almost everybody, I think, in this small startup and I am set to meet with the CEO and he interviewed everybody that they hired back at that time. And we sit down and the very first question out of his mouth is, if you were an onion and I peeled back the first three layers, what would I find? Oh my goodness. This threw me for a loop. I was not expecting that kind of question at all. So it was a moment where I had to think on my feet. And I, I immediately thought of when I cook, and, and I love cooking, when I cook and I use onions, I cry all the time. And so I tapped into that. I leveraged a structure that I had remembered from graduate school. I'm a huge fan of structure. And I ended up talking about emotion and how emotion is so important in work. And how the the people I used to lead, because I, I was a, a leader of learning and development before I was interviewing for this job, and we ended up talking about emotions, and we had a deep, meaningful conversation about how you bring your whole self to work. The CEO must have been impressed. They hired me after that interview. But in that moment, I'll tell you, I, I was speaking on the spot, let me tell you. So, so that's really interesting. Just before we delve into some of the bits that really stood out uh, in the book, for me at least... Your approach in that interview, which sounds like is a number of years back, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Back then, sort of authenticity, kind of showing a degree of vulnerability isn't really something that was getting much coverage or, or press in the, in the business world, right? So I'm just curious, like, did that feel risky in the moment, taking that approach? And, and if so, like, what gave you the, I guess, courage to... To, to go with that because many people wouldn't right they'd answer the question in a very typical way where they try and kind of turn it around to a question they've they've thought about and or give a standard slightly trite answer perhaps about what what they would find if you peeled the layers back I really appreciate that question, and I'm going to be very candid and honest with you. In that moment, I was so panicked to come up with an answer that I was not strategically thinking about this is risky or vulnerable. Right uh, Now, to add to that, it is part of my personality to, to connect and talk about that. In graduate school, I studied interpersonal communication. I studied relational communication, how we connect. So it was part of me to be thinking about the socio-emotional part of our relationships. So for me, it wasn't strange to say, and perhaps it was my ignorance of what was going on in the, in the zeitgeist at the time that it was inappropriate to say. Yeah. But in that moment, I was like, I have to answer this question. I don't want to be trite because I did remember thinking, well, I'm just going to say I'm a hard worker and that's what's on layer three of my onion. Yeah. But that didn't feel authentic and true. And so that's why I went down that other path. But in that moment, I was not thinking, oh, I'm going to be really vulnerable here. I hope that's okay. I was thinking, I just need to answer this question. And that's really one of the underlying philosophies in the methodology that I ultimately ended up creating along with, you know, with help from many other people is in the moment, make a decision, commit to something and go for it, right? If you're overjudging and over-evaluating everything you say before you say it, it locks you up. And, and this is one of the big hacks that has helped the MBA students I teach is 
commit to something, go for it, and then think about the ramifications versus the other way around. That's interesting. I guess that approach applies perhaps universally in so many different domains, right, as well as just impromptu speaking. Somewhat tangentially, it reminds me of, I was just saying off air, my family and I have just come back from a big extended vacation, kind of touring, kind of Canada and the and the west coast of, of the US. And heading home, we had the most disrupted airplane journey experience I, I've ever had. We had so many cancelled, delayed, missed flights. And I think our the final flight that we we missed, or we just got off one plane that was delayed, we realized we'd missed our connection. On the Virgin Atlantic app, we had a message saying, we've booked you on this alternative flight. You're now going Atlanta to Tampa, Tampa back to, to London Heathrow. You're at kind of this gate. And we had like 50 minutes to get there. And my wife and I were stood at the, the Delta in the queue for the Delta help desk because it was a Virgin flight operated by Delta. And my wife said, what do we do? So we could go to the gate and the app might not be right. We might not be on that flight. We might make it. Or we could stay here and queue at the help desk and ask them. But if we do, we're definitely going to miss that flight. Like, what, what do we do? And my response was, which wasn't that calm because I was feeling slightly kind of anxious and stressed in the moment, but maybe it comes back to my military training. I said, Joe, we've just got to make a decision because right now they're both equally good or bad as the other, and then we'll deal with the ramifications next. So it strikes me that principle you're talking about in terms of impromptu communication is quite universal. But I guess the challenge is having the the nerve, the courage to just make a decision either way, isn't it? It is. And I'm so sorry. I've had really amazingly awful travel experiences too. <laughs> I, I hope the decision you made was a good one. But yes, you're right. It's about making a decision and committing to it and giving yourself permission to be okay with whatever that decision is in the moment. Hmm. There are many things that can go wrong in communication. We strive to get things right but there is no right. There's only better and worse. And so we have to make a commitment and then go forward. And then, of course, we can always try to rectify and apologize for anything that, that we do that is inappropriate or, or it wasn't optimal. But we do have to commit to that in the moment. And I borrow from the world of improvisation as well as my martial arts training to really make this point. And in both of those domains, very different. They're all about commit to something in the moment. I, I have several amazing Amazing improvisation mentors, Patricia Ryan Madsen, Adam Tobin, Dan Klein. These are people who've been doing improv for decades. And they have taught me that in the moment when something has to be done, make a commitment and move forward with it. And the same thing in the martial arts. If you hesitate, you know, I've studied martial arts for over four decades. If you hesitate in the moment, you will have repercussions. And those repercussions in some cases can really hurt. <laughs> so it's about responding. I make a distinction, and I haven't talked much with people about this, between responding and reacting. Responding is what you do in the moment. Reacting literally means to act again. It means you think about it, you evaluate it, and then you do it again. And sometimes, especially in the moment, we must respond. And then after committing, follow up either positively or, or fixing the mistakes we've made. Yeah, I love that. And I actually, I've not really heard many people talk about the distinction between responding and, and reacting. So I first learned that as a 
very junior lieutenant in the in the British Army, mm-hmm. and I was doing my training to be a, an infantry platoon commander. Mm-hmm. And we had a exchange officer from the Australian Parachute Regiment, and he said to us, he "said When the day comes when you are deployed on active duty overseas mm-hmm. and bullets start hitting the ground behind you," he said, "You will instinctively react." And your soldiers need you to be able to respond. He defined it as responding, being more deliberate and thoughtful versus reacting, being the instinctive Mm -hmm. fight or flight type response that we're going to get, which sometimes can not be helpful because we don't make those considered choices. It's always stayed with me. He said, the first thing I want you to do after you've taken cover and you're somewhere safe is to take out the water bottle from the pouch on your right hip, undo the lid, drink half of the contents of your water bottle, do up the lid, put it back in your pouch, do up the clip. And all he was teaching us was to give us that momentary pause, that slight bit of thinking time, which allows us to, I guess, calm down, centre and think rather than, than, than reacting. And I find it interesting because... If we're able to do that, even when literally bullets are hitting the ground in front of us, we could do it in most situations, right? If there's a decision to be made or some impromptu thinking, we normally can give ourselves a couple of seconds to think. But, and this is where the, the question comes in. What is it that you think drives us as humans to think as soon as we're put on the spot, we have to react and come up with something straight away? Yes. So I, I love that technique of giving yourself a beat pausing and taking a moment to really just collect your thoughts. And in spontaneous communication, there are lots of things we can do to give us that. Mm. Uh, We can take a sip of water. We can ask a clarifying question. We can paraphrase what was said. There are lots of things we can do in that moment. So I, I, that, that exchange officer you talked about, I think was onto something that's very important because all we need is that beat to get ourselves grounded and to focus. Why do we feel we need to respond right away? There is an expectation, I think, that competence and credibility is established by speed with which we respond. I don't agree with that. I think a thoughtful response can take a little bit of time. But there's this, there's this idea that we need to respond quickly to demonstrate our competence, our credibility, and I dare I say confidence. I think when we're really nervous and anxious about something, we're afraid that taking that beat betrays that, that anxiety that we have. So we want to respond right away. And I bet everybody listening to this, yourself included, have regretted jumping in too soon in some situations, right? And, and wish we, oh, if I would have just thought it through for a second, it would have been better. Now, this sounds contradictory to what I said earlier, where we just need to respond. I do think we need to just respond, but we can also take that beat before we respond. And in it is not to think and evaluate and judge necessarily. It could be just to calm ourselves down, to connect to the other person, to really be in that moment so that our response feels genuine and feels authentic. Going back to that onion question, part of what the CEO told me later that was so impressive to him about my answer, one is that it was quite different than what everybody else did, but two is I had paused and really connected to him. He felt like we were having a genuine moment there and I wasn't just giving some rote answer. And that's important too, because when we communicate, it's not just what we say, it's how we connect and, and really focus on the person with whom we're speaking. Yeah. I love, love that. 
And if we go back for a second to, I guess, the kernel for you writing this book and that realization that some of these amazingly smart students at, at grad school were sort of freezing and choking up when put on the spot in the in their lectures when they were asked to sort of present some of their some of their findings. Yeah. Yeah. I think that links to the statistic that we've all probably heard thousands of times around this whole list of things that people are most afraid of and fearful of life. And you usually hear hear it quoted as people are more afraid of public speaking and impromptu speaking than they are of death and cancer or or whatever. Again, just before we hit record, I thought, I wonder if that's actually true. And I just started trying to Google it and find a, a credible source that that lists that. Like, and I couldn't really find much, if if I'm honest. So, like, oh, okay. What's your take on that? How how prevalent is some degree of fear around planned or impromptu public speaking? Because I think often the case when we realise, oh, do you know what? Ninety percent of other senior leaders feel the same way as me. That in itself is a big win, right? Because we go, ah, oh, okay, it's not just me. So what's the state of play there, Matt? Yeah, so I, I will answer your question, and then I'm going to tell you a story that links to it. So there is credible evidence that the fear of speaking in public is one of the most significant fears people have. It's one of the things people choose to avoid the most. Uh, the numbers I've seen uh, go anywhere from 75 to 85% of people report that anxiety looms large for them in high-stakes communication, be it planned or spontaneous. Uh, relative ranking of where is fear versus uh, fear of speaking versus fear of death, fear of spiders, fear of heights, that that varies. I mean, that that's a sensational headline. The reality is this. Those of us who study this, and I have done academic research in this field, uh, believe that being f- afraid of speaking in, other, in front of others is innate to being human. We see it across every culture. We see it develop pretty consistently in uh, kids as they age, really those tween years as kids enter their teenage years, really when they're fully contributing to a group or society, that's where we see it spike. These are all signs that this is an innate thing. So yes, it, it, it looms large for most people. 75, 85% of the people report that. I actually think the other 25, 15% are lying. I, <laughs> I think we could create situations that would make them nervous. But here's a story that happened to me many, many years ago. I, my first book I wrote is called Speaking Up Without Freaking Out. And it's all about managing anxiety around speaking, planned or spontaneous. And I was in the San Francisco airport and they called my name. Uh, again, I was having a moment like you where something was being canceled. They announced my name over the, the PA system. So I went up to the desk, dealt with my issue. I came back and this gentleman comes to me and he says, you're the guy who wrote that book about speaking anxiety. I I said, yes. And he said, it was so helpful to me. And I said, oh, great. Did you read the book? Tell me about it. He goes, oh, I didn't read it. I said, this is strange. So you own the book, but you didn't read it and it helped you. Tell me more. And here's what he said, which I thought was really insightful, which is he said, just knowing that there's a book written on speaking anxiety helped me to realize that I'm not the only person that experiences it because we don't talk about it, right? We just see these people who speak well and we assume they're not fearful. In fact, they are. And he said, it helped me just to know that there was a book out there because I know you didn't write the book just for me. To write a book must mean many people have this problem. And that made him feel better. So of course I thought, well, the next book I'm right, I'm going to write, I'm just not going to put anything in the book. I'm just going to have a title and people will benefit. That's that's <laughs> not what I did for this new book. The new book is chock full of things. <laughs> I'm just going to check there's actually some text in here flicking through it. <laughs> there is, there is. Thank you for verifying that. But, but the point I think goes directly to what you had mentioned is that it's something that we don't talk about, yet it persists, and, it, and it's, it's very, very important for people to learn to manage their anxiety. 
So Matt, I've really been enjoying the book and I've deliberately made the decision to pause after around sort of chapter three because I wanted to go back and make sure I'm really applying some of the learning from the first chapter where you really delve into taming and managing some of these feelings of, of anxiety that can crop up because I think it's got applications that are quite universal, not just around impromptu public speaking. And in that chapter, you talk specifically about sort of three categories or areas in which this anxiety can manifest that you, I think, group under ABC. Can you tell us a little about those categories and some of the, the tactics that we can use in each area? Certainly. And uh, I'm glad you're taking value from the book. And the way you're reading the book, I think, is a great way to read it. You know, I encourage people to, to take the book as it makes sense for them. I, I see this as a, as a book that you'll refer to, hopefully, for, for many, many years to come. It has two major parts. The first part is what you're talking about is the methodology. The second part is specific examples of, of speaking situations we find ourselves in. And you're right. The very first chapter is about anxiety because that's where we have to start. We have to learn to manage our anxiety so that we can put ourselves in a position to be better able to speak in the moment. And uh, there are many ways of categorizing speaking anxiety. The ABCs is one way. It's affective, behavioral, and cognitive, ABC. So let me walk through each, and then let me give you a technique or two that can help you manage them. So affective is the emotional part that we feel. When we are anxious about speaking, very strong emotions come up. And those emotions affect all the other aspects, the behavioral and the cognitive. So there's some things that we can do to manage those emotions. Perhaps the the best, and, and, and again, a little counterintuitive, comes from the world of mindfulness. In mindfulness, we are taught when we have an emotion, positive or negative, to truly experience the emotion. Many of us, when we get anxious, we, we want to run away from it. We don't want to have that feeling. We want to distract ourselves from it. What mindfulness teaches us is embrace that emotion. Say to yourself, this is me feeling anxious. This is me feeling nervous. It's normal and natural to feel nervous in a speaking situation like this. So we validate it. Most people would feel this way. And by embracing it and acknowledging it, you give yourself permission not only to experience it, but to do something about it. Many of us feel that our emotions just sweep us away and we, just, we, we don't have any control over them. In fact, we do. So if you begin to feel anxious, say to yourself, this is me feeling anxious, makes sense that I'm anxious. I'm doing something that most people would feel nervous about. And I can do a few things like manage some of the symptoms, which takes me to the behavioral part. Many of us, when we get nervous, our heart beats faster, we get shaky, we blush, we perspire. There are things you can do to manage those symptoms. The single best and most important thing you can do is take some deep belly breaths. My assumption is, as somebody who is in the military, you were taught very specific ways to breathe to quickly calm yourself down and focus. One of the most common things to do is to take slow inhalations in and even slower exhalations out, full belly breaths. And what that does is it slows down your autonomic nervous system, your heartbeat is slower, you're able to focus more. So deep belly breathing can manage a lot of the symptoms. Another thing that people haven't heard of is when we blush and we perspire, that's because our body is getting hotter. You can cool yourself down by holding something cold in the palms of your hand. The palms of your hand are thermoregulators for your body. If you've ever on a cold morning held a warm cup of tea or coffee and felt it warm you up, we can do the same thing in reverse by holding something cold. In fact, before we got on this call today, when I get excited or nervous, I blush and I perspire. I was holding something cold 
to calm me down and to reduce that. So that's affective and behavioral. And then there's cognitive. Cognitive is mentally what goes on. We say a tremendous amount of negative things to each other we are, and to ourselves when we speak. We say things like, oh my goodness, I should have prepared more. Or how could I be in this situation? Why is it me and not Ben having to do this? That other person who just went, they, they knocked it out of the park. I have to go next. That's awful. So all this negative self-talk is cognitive and gets in the way. And we can replace it with something positive. You can simply immediately before speaking, spontaneous or planned, say something like a mantra, a positive affirmation that negates or cancels those negative cognitive thoughts. Something like, I have value to bring, or I was invited to speak to share my knowledge. These are not like, I'm the best speaker ever. They are simply helping us feel better in the moment by canceling out the negative thoughts. So it's affective, emotional, behavioral, what goes on in your body. It's cognitive, that's the mental aspect. And there are different management techniques you can associate with each of those. And there are many, many of those. My first book had over 50 techniques. I just identified three or four. So those techniques, are they generally all created equal, shall we say? And the specific reason I asked that question is, going back, I think, last season in the podcast, I had a clinical psychologist on the show who had a real degree of expertise around supporting people with imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. We had a similar conversation. And one of the things she said I'd never heard before was, physiology responds to physiology. Mm -hmm. And I think her point was that if we're in a state of deep anxiety or stress, where we are experiencing some of them behavioral or physiological responses, they would only respond to to physiology. So in those moments, I think she was suggesting that no amount of positive self-talk was really going to make a difference when the heart is racing and Mm -hmm. the chest is thumping what, what, what's your take on that from your research and all that you've studied? Yes. Yeah, so I've absolutely heard that before. I don't know if you've heard of Andrew Huberman. He's become quite popular. Yeah. He, he teaches at Stanford. I, I know Andrew. Uh, I had him on my podcast and he made a very similar point that you, you, you have to use the body to control the body is what he'll say. Uh, And I do believe in many cases that's very important. And by that, what I mean is deep breathing, physical movement. There are lots of things you can do to address the physiological symptoms, the psychological symptoms that we have. That said, there is some pretty big and good evidence that we can use our mind to help control some of these symptoms. Uh, I have a colleague, uh, she teaches at Harvard's Business School. Her name is Allison Woods Brooks, and she did this amazing study many years ago that if we cognitively reframe the physiological symptoms that we have of anxiety and see it as excitement, that that actually reduces the level of anxiety and increases our performance in communication. In other words, the physiological responses you have to to threat, to anxiety, are exactly the same physiological responses you have to excitement. So Ben, if I said, you have to give a speech right now, your body would respond in a certain way. And if I came up to you and I said, hey, Ben, guess what? You won the lottery. There are millions of pounds or euros coming your way. You would have the same physiological responses, but the way you cognitively evaluate those are very different. Your heart rate would go up, you'd get a little shaky, you'd start to perspire. But in one case, you're really excited. In the other case, you're like, really dreading it. So if we can convince ourselves, her research says, that what we're doing is exciting, 
it can change the way we, re- we react. So I'm not negating what your previous guest said. It's absolutely true. But there is some strong evidence that cognition can control or manage, I should say, uh, some of our anxiety symptoms as well, especially around speaking. I don't know anxiety in all of its facets. I do know pretty well the literature on anxiety and speaking. I guess that's the point though, right? For all of us in any domain, it's not holding too tightly to a piece of knowledge, right? Especially when it comes to the human experience, because our, our, our knowledge and the science and research is always evolving, right? So something that we once thought was absolutely fact could, in the future, not quite be so factual. Right, exactly. Things change, right? And, and we, get, we get more information, more insight and learn more. So Matt, there's another question that's been buzzing around my head that didn't occur to me until we started this conversation today. And last week I was working with a group of senior leaders as part of a a leadership program and linked to what we were working on, I shared with them a few of the key sort of filters or meta programs that comes from the world of NLP or neuro-linguistic programming. One that's particularly close to my heart because it's just quite relevant and I find it useful is this distinction of whether we are more of an internal thinker or more of an external thinker. And I I know you'll know this, but for kind of listeners who've not come across it before and dive in kind of with your kind of view and take on this. So the internal thinker and the external thinker, assuming they've broadly got the same IQ, will think at the same speed, process a problem or a request to speak on an impromptu basis at the same speed. It's just the internal thinker will need to go into themselves to internally process and then speak, whereas the external thinker literally needs to verbalize their thought process. They need to hear themselves thinking to, to know what they think. How does this play out with impromptu speaking? I guess particularly, maybe this is a question for, to help me personally, any tips for the internal thinkers in particular? Because if I'm asked a, maybe a question I'm not prepared for, I would naturally want to just pause, stand there, process, and then speak where it can sometimes, maybe this is this is wrong, it's my perception as an internal thinker. It appears that it might be easier for the external thing because they can naturally feel for themselves while they're just thinking out loud. So what, what are your thoughts, tips, suggestions on that? Yeah, so this is a, a very intriguing question, one that is asked often. It comes in different guises. Sometimes it's introvert versus extrovert. Yeah. Uh, essentially what you're asking is, what's the difference between thinking than speaking or speaking than thinking, right? And there are advantages and disadvantages to both. You know, many people who are internal thinkers or introverts feel that they are at a disadvantage in most communication situations. Yet the research actually shows that's not true. Introverts, those who who reflect before speaking, tend to provide more meaningful communication, more concise communication, communication that is more interpersonally connected. Those are all very, very valuable things. So this, this notion of thinking before speaking, internal speaking, thinking is really, really important. The extroverts, those who speak then think, they tend to process externally. So we all hear their thoughts. So sometimes they tend to ramble. Sometimes they tend to disconnect because they're in their heads as they're speaking. So it's not always wonderful, right? It's not always, it's not always that perfect panacea that many of us see. The reality is this. We need to, one, be aware of what our approach is so we can hone and develop it. Yeah. It's not about becoming like the other. It's about maturing 
and honing the way we approach it and being comfortable doing so. So I, I don't think one is better than the other. If you are somebody who needs time to think, as I mentioned earlier, find ways to give yourself time. Get comfortable with silence. So pausing for a moment, even announcing that, say, I'm going to think about that for just a second and pause. Yeah, I love that. Or asking a clarifying question or paraphrasing, as I mentioned before. All of those are tools to buy yourself a little bit of time. Now, if you're somebody who speaks before you think, then I'd love for you to read in my book the parts where I talk about structure and framework. So as you are speaking, you will speak in a way that packages up your information clearly for those listening. Because again, those who speak then think often ramble, they often list information, and that can distract and make it difficult for your listeners. So either side of that continuum has some challenges and some opportunities to become more clear in their speaking. Brilliant. Love that. I guess, hence a lot of Susan Cain's work, right? In her book, The Power of Introverts in a World That Won't Stop Speaking. It's absolutely right. It's not kind of trying to be the other or one is better than the other. It's it's making the most of the gifts we've been given and building diverse teams where we've got a, a range of skill sets and, and approaches. Absolutely. Absolutely. Matt, I've got a new question uh -huh. that I've never thought to ask guests on the show before that if it goes well it might become a bit of a bit of a theme or my signature question perhaps uh oh so, okay i'm ready i'll see if i can think fast and talk smart <laughs> yeah if you can't none of us can <laughs> so here's the question if you were the host of this podcast interviewing matt abrahams what question would you ask I love this question, and I'm not stalling, but I'm going to tell you why. When I teach interviewing skills, people always ask me, what is the question that I ask at the end of an interview? So for example, if I'm being interviewed, you, Ben, as the interviewer, often will say, are there any questions for me at the end of the interview? And people are always curious, how would I answer that question? And I answer that question with one very similar to yours. I say, Mr. Ms. Interviewer, what do you wish that you would have asked when you were interviewing for the role you have? And I have to tell you, I have gleaned so many interesting insights from that question. So I love it. So let me see if I can live up to that standard. Uh, if I were interviewing me about leadership skills, I would ask, what is the relationship between communication and leadership? And I will answer that question that I just asked myself uh, as the ventriloquist for Ben Morton. <laughs> Communication to me is operationalized leadership. I think the only way you demonstrate leadership, managerial skills, influence is through communication. So to me, they are intimately intertwined. There are others who see communication as a necessary evil in leadership and management. And I do not believe that. I teach a class on strategic communication. I believe that communication is critical. And like I said, I believe it is operationalized leadership. It is how we demonstrate leadership. It is how we do leadership. So the question I would ask is, how do you connect those two ideas? And hopefully my answer is insightful for you and for others. Fabulous. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been an amazing conversation. So many little nuggets of information that I can certainly take away and I'm sure will be the same for listeners. Before we wrap up, if people want to know more about you, your work, how can they how can they find out more? What's the best place for them or where should they head? 
Ben, thank you so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. And uh, you are an excellent podcast host. So I'll start there with podcasts. I, I host Think Fast, Talk Smart. It's all about communication. I invite people to listen in. If you go to mattabrahams.com, you can learn more about Think Faster, Talk Smarter and my other work. I have a tremendous number of resources there. And finally, I'm a big user of Instagram and LinkedIn. Connect in with me there and uh, you can communicate with me and share your ideas as well. Matt, thank you so much. Have a great day and look forward to crossing paths with you at some stage in the future again. Take care. You as well. Thank you. Before you head off to whatever else is on your agenda for today, let me just say thank you for joining me and Matt on another episode of the podcast. I really hope what you heard resonated with you and that it has created some real value and actions that you can take away and apply to help make you an even better leader. For me personally, Matt's insights around tackling the anxiety associated with impromptu speaking are particularly valuable and it strikes me that they are applicable across so many domains of life and leadership. Before you go, do please go ahead and take a look at my new Delegation Mastery Program via the link in the show notes. It is the most comprehensive online program I've ever created, and I know that you and your team will get huge value from it. So do go ahead and click on that link in the show notes right now. And if you've still got a few minutes after you've done that, taking a few minutes to rate, review and subscribe to the show wherever you happen to be listening would be hugely appreciated by me and the team here. It really does enable us to keep developing, building the show and enables us to attract more and more interesting guests for you to listen to and learn from. That's it for this week. Until next time, look after yourself. Look after those you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. And as always, folks, lead on. Mm-hmm.